Hello, ruffians, and welcome to Playing Rough, a gaming podcast that combines humor, tryharding, and still having friends. I'm your horrible host, John Mincer, and with me, as always, is... Am I the terrible host, then? <laughs> Did I say horrible? <laughs> terrible? Very, you said horrible, very... so that make, does that make, make me terrible? This is our no-good, very bad podcast. <laughs> this is David Conrad, by the way, if you couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Alexander is nowhere to be seen. Um, so, so, hey, David, how's it going hey, this Halloween week? It's going. Um, it's been a, a long last week. This week is the light at the end of the tunnel, though. I'm excited that I mostly have work stuff taken care of. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like um, I make this comment every year, not necessarily on the podcast, but like, two people around me that um halloween i can't do the like build up to it like i used to when i was younger um because i there was a long like three week stretch where i could just be excited about it when i was a kid and now it's like those three weeks are full of like the most important curricular stuff of the year <laughs> in my job and just like things happening constantly this is a very busy time for us <laughs> Yeah, it's always nuts right around this time of year. It's weird. I don't know what it is about October. I I don't know. Uh, you know, everybody's got to get their um, last projects in before, you know, the pumpkin-headed creature strides the land. <laughs> as, as Midwesterners, you get used to uh, the pumpkin-headed creature. It comes from the cornfields, and um, you have to give it stuff. So this is where the great on. pumpkin comes from. That's right. It's, it's the least sincere, most sarcastic pumpkin. From the, from the worst pumpkin patches. Um, but uh, anyway, um, we've got a short little What Are You Playing coming up, and then we've mm-hmm. got a lot of uh, interesting musings on uh, horror this year, I think. so. Um, yeah, I'm super excited, as always. Me too. Let's, uh, yeah, let's swing right in. Uh, what have you been able to play this, this week? So I have finally wrapped up this month's... Uh, cups for the season of uh pokemon goes self arena thing that they're doing um it, it was it was a good month for me uh 12 games played total went 10 and 2 for this for the sinister cup uh which i guess is appropriate uh since we're going into since we're doing scary stuff for it being october and i've already started practicing for next month's ferocious cup which we should see how that is i'm currently ranked 143 in the world Ooh. and top 25 in the country Ooh. We'll see how it holds. Uh, I'm hoping that it sticks. It'll d- really depend on how my weighted cup goes next month. Uh, if I can have another really good run for my weighted cup, I should be able to kind of cement that as long as I don't super screw it up over the next couple months. I mean, the thing that a hero would do would be to grab the weighted cup and hit their enemies with it because it's got weights, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the bottom. you got to make sure you know where they're at. <laughs> swing, swing appropriately. Um, <laughs> what about you? Excellent. Yeah, so... Um, I, I'm going to take just a moment of my, my time here and talk about the Outer Worlds. You you know me, uh, Dave, how I am not the type of person to buy games on day one. First of all, for bug reasons, you know, I like when the fix comes out first. Uh, but also just because I tend to be kind of a patient gamer, you know, I would rather you know, play some old classics for a while and let uh, other people do my testing for me and then mm. play a new game um, eventually when, when I get around to it. But... I had a rough week last week uh, for many of the same reasons that we were talking about earlier. And at the end of the week, uh, Friday came around and it was the release date of Outer Worlds. And I said to myself, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. So (laughs) I bought the Outer Worlds. It's the newest game from Obsidian. 
Um, it was a little bit of a, a drop of cash for me. Uh, price is $60 right now. But I was like, you know what? This is the, exactly the sort of game I've been waiting for for a while, and I want to give it a shot. And David, this game could have been made specifically for me. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it, you know, it's like many of the RPGs that Obsidian does. It's got very functional, but not super exciting combat, uh, first-person shooter sort of thing. Um, and more important are the social elements of the RPG. So there's large towns with lots of um, interesting NPCs in them really good personalities and what's important is that your skills feed into the skill checks that you can use in uh in combat i'm sorry in um in combat yes but more importantly in conversations and uh the conversations go where you want them to based on the skills that you use in those conversations um Sometimes your skill checks will allow you to, you know, get more items or more money or something out of the conversation. Other times they just let you roleplay the way you want to roleplay. Other times they unlock secret uh, compromises and secret ways for, for quests to end. So anyway, right now I'm, I'm doing what I like to do in a game like this, and I'm playing as a high-intelligence, high-charm uh, character so I can get all of those sweet, sweet conversational gambits, you know? <laughs> um and the fun thing about the Outer Worlds is that it's a very philosophical kind of um, game, and it's got a, a real sense of humor to it, too. So uh, one of the philosophical clashes is between um, sort of a nonsensical but very logical uh, religious movement and another one which is also nonsensical but very sort of chaotic and, um, you know, what, what will be, will be sort of thing. And several of the characters in the game clash uh, between these two viewpoints, Um there's also a, uh, a big um, sort of exploration satirically of capitalism and how, you know, uh, letting corporations get too much power will, you know, lead to them acting like governments, essentially. Uh, some of them will, you know, erode individual rights if the corporation gets very, uh, very powerful. So um, never seen that happen before. Yeah, right. I know. It's not like that's topical at all. But, right. Um, you know, you go into like a company town and people are being told that they, you know, don't have a high enough personal profit margin to justify having uh, medicines. And um, and it's weird, right? Because when you read it like that, it sounds like, holy crap, like this is an incredibly, um, you know, brutal sort of system. Uh, people are, are telling them to their faces, I've made the decision, you're not productive enough for uh, medicine which is something that already happens. It's just abstracted. Instead of saying it to people's faces, you just can't hmm. afford your medicine, right? So right. Um, it's, a, it's a really interesting sort of subversion. Uh, it, it's both um, funny and also takes itself relatively seriously and, and really reflects on the topics that it, it brings up. So anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's not open world. It's like a hub-based game. So there's a lot of exploration, but it's like within kind of a localized area. And um, I've been doing a lot of that, <laughs> just sort of wandering, <laughs> wandering around in the uh, caverns and stuff. And um, it's been a lot of fun. Um, like I said, combat's functional. It's fine. Um, but the the story really, really shines. And I'm going to look forward to playing it again, you know, as a, a dumb character or as a character that, um, you know, focuses on melee combat rather than talking and stuff so we'll see how how it goes but i'm i'm excited to try you know another playthrough in a little bit i'm gonna try to be a good character this time i i usually do but um 
I'm I'm just I'm loving it. It, it makes me feel like uh, another Obsidian game, one of my favorites, uh, Fallout New Vegas. So anyway, um, just wanted to chat about that a little bit. That's really all I've been playing this week because it's. Really I love fun. listening to you gush about games you love. <laughs> well, you know, I, I tend to react to things um, that I like that are new with like a lot of enthusiasm at first, and sort of let that get tempered over time. So, uh, you know, take that with with a whatever grain of salt. If you're sort of a temperamentally pessimistic gamer, you might not like it <laughs> as much as I did, but um, I, do, I am really enjoying it. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's go ahead and uh, make our pivot here. We wanted to talk about horror, right? It's Halloween week. We're going to be releasing very, uh, I think, just after Halloween. And we wanted to just to chat about this this topic of playing something that gets you frightened, right? Right. And, and the idea of what does it mean to, you know, be the one in control versus how you experience, like, a movie or a book where you're just kind of a passive, like, observer of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you first mentioned this as a topic, I was like, oh, that's an awesome idea. But there are games that also uh, force you to live through like a controlled helplessness or mm-hmm. like a, um, sometimes a cutscene, but more often something where you can do a little bit. But in the end, the uh, the villain is going to beat you in this segment, right? Um, right. Or like, and what I think is interesting is, in a lot of games, not doing anything means that the game itself just isn't progressing. Mm-hmm. But there are actual like horror games where you have you doing nothing is what kills you. Yeah, um, and sometimes that's you know the lost condition, right? Most often, I would say. So games like uh, Silent Hill, you're not supposed to die until you get to the actual end, and then sometimes you die, and sometimes you you don't. But um, uh, if you die before the ending, then you have lost. Right. Right. I, re- I can still remember the first time I played Eternal Darkness and I was so surprised that one of the characters you play as gets squashed like spoilers on a, you know, 25 year old game here. But um, one of the uh, medieval characters that you play uncovers the secret of this cult that it's actually able to summon these, you know, enormous monsters. And he like goes to turn around and report it to, uh, I guess, the cardinal or whatever. And this monster just squashes him. <laughs> And I was like, what? Like, did I lose? Did I did I do something wrong? Nope, there's no way to save him. That's just how the story goes. Because um, well, Eternal Darkness is a game that messes around with, like, telling you different stories from history, right? Yes, exactly. You play as a number of different people involved in, eventually, over the course of, like, 300 years, uh, bringing this, this cult down. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, it's just interesting how, like, it, horror in gaming itself like because you're the one actively participating in it you are forcing yourself to go through this experience because like yeah. if you're watching a movie you can close your eyes you can walk out of the room you can do whatever and the movie keeps going mm-hmm. but you with a game like i said like yeah sometimes doing nothing is what actually kills you it's like something like the five nights at freddy's uh franchise mm-hmm. but like you have to Or another good example is like the Amnesia games, where if you just sit in a corner in the dark, your character goes crazier and crazier to the point of dying. Right. So you have to get out of the dark and keep progressing the game. But you are the one who has to actively do that. Otherwise, like 
it, it, the story won't just continue without you. Absolutely. And you know what I love about this this topic is um, how broad of a spectrum it is, right? So mm-hmm. at the most helpless, I think of games like the Clock Tower games, where mm-hmm. you literally have no ability to harm the killer. You you have to just escape them and solve the mystery of, of your area or whatever in time so that your character can progress and you can get a break from the terrifying gameplay, right? Um, a game that we played actually, uh, was it last year? A couple of years ago? Uh, Dead by Daylight. Um, we, we had a short series last year on, hmm. uh, on this. Uh, that's a similar kind of thing where you as a character have to do stuff. You have to um, actively go out and fix generators, but you can't do anything against the killer that comes to get you. Uh, right. The best you can hope to do is like wriggle your way out of their arms and run. Exactly. Um, but there are other games where you can do a lot, right? Like, um, gosh, I think about things like Resident Evil 4 where, you know, you end up mowing down like hordes of zombies, like literal well, hordes I, of zombies. And I think that 5 took that a step further and like basically fully pushed into it was just an action game that had horror trappings. Yeah, you and I played through that together. Um and like there wasn't aside from like jump scares and stuff that game didn't try as hard to set a horror like atmosphere mm-hmm. it just kind of like kept pushing you forward uh when i mean like there were still zombies and there was these still like grotesque things in it so it had these horror trappings but it wasn't seeking as much to actively scare you well and i think that you've, you've really hit on something very important here right and that's that one important element of being scared is an element of feeling helpless right so when you watch a horror movie you can close your eyes, sure, but if you if you stick with it, what's scary is knowing that the characters on the screen are getting themselves into a, a terrifying, dangerous situation, and there's nothing you can do about it. You can't mm-hmm. yell at them and say, wait, don't go in that building, or stop, the guy with the hook is right outside your car. They're going to do something like get out of the car, um, and you can't stop them. So that, that right. helplessness, um, or the helplessness when you read like a really good horror novel... Um, comes from you the reader not being able to stop the things that are unfolding um in a game it would seem unless someone pulls some trick you know like killing you uh, at the end of a chapter or something <laughs> it, it would seem like they don't have the same toolkit the helplessness has to come from not having a weapon that can hurt them um or uh you know the the infection somehow being able to to get you when you are really powerful like you are in uh, resident evil 5 and you can just you know, I, I remember one um, scene in, I think it was a, like a car uh, junkyard or something. Mm-hmm. It was just, and just like hordes of zombies come at you, but you just <laughs> kill them all. Um, right. Like you, you, it's not scary as much. Right. Like, except if you play that game on some of the hardest difficulty, you never really feel like you're running out of ammunition or running out of ways to fight these hordes. Yeah. Um, it, it very much just feels like that. It feels like an action game with horror trappings. And what I think is interesting, with if you look at the Resident Evil series in general, is how many times it's tried to reinvent itself and go in different ways. Like I really think that Resident Evil Seven actually got the helplessness feeling in the beginning of that game down Ooh. really well. So tell me a little bit about that. I actually haven't played Seven. So I've not played it, but I've watched a lot of playthroughs of it. And like what happens in the beginning is you get a note from. Um, I believe it was either your fiance or your girlfriend uh, who you haven't seen for a few years, uh, basically telling you that you need to come to X place. Uh, Something's going on. She can't say exactly what. And when you get there, like you have to, it's like in the bayou 
and you have to like actively get into this really kind of creepy looking house and after you get in there you do end up finding her and she's been mutated mm. by whatever it is that's going on in this uh and no matter no matter what you do to her she keeps coming back and eventually takes a chainsaw to your hand and cuts it off Oh, like, no. like you try to fight back, and you do succeed a few times, but she always comes back, and each time does more and more damage to you until that point happens. And that's just the start of the game. From there, it becomes about this mystery of this really weird family that has done whatever it is to your ex, to your girlfriend, or whoever it is. Um, and, it, you know, it ends up doing the traditional Resident Evil thing, talking about biological weapons and things like that. But you're just some random guy. You're not Chris Redfield, who's used to fighting this stuff, or any of the other characters in the Resident Evil lineup who have fought this stuff for years. And I think that that was a really smart move on their part, because, like, with Chris, like, his evolution to 5 makes sense, because he's been actively fighting against these hordes for years at that point. So it makes sense that he'd know what to do and how to fight him and things like that. When you're just some random dude in a scary house with this creepy, unkillable family that's trying to mutilate and eat you, there's not, like, that's much more terrifying. By the end of it, it you, like, eventually get to the point where you have enough weapons to fight things and you get to the end to fight the bosses, but your character still isn't the, like, big buff, let's go and just run in there and fight and do a whole bunch of stuff. Um... You get to the point where you can actively kill things and stuff. The normal monsters aren't as scary as they were in the beginning of the game. But you're never at that point where you're just like action hero running through, like blasting things as you run sort of thing. Right. Um, you know, and that's a little bit of a, a return to form for Resident Evil, right? Because the first one, um, which does in fact uh, include, you know, many of the now, now uh, recognizable and popular characters... But at that time, they were just people caught in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And the game created horror by constantly playing with, well, how much ammo do you have? Um, you know, can you stop the monsters that are coming with what you've got on you? And if you played things smartly, yeah, sure, you could, or you could sneak through or, or whatever. But um, most of the time, you always felt like, well, gosh, I only have eight bullets left. Like, what if something comes at me? That could take all of them. Or Well, um, and did they they have this in the original one too where like if you killed a zombie but didn't fully like burn its body eventually it comes back yeah actually thank you for bringing that up because um you never had enough oil to burn all of them so one of the scariest moments of my early gaming life was playing resident evil one and uh backtracking to find some stuff and as i returned um one of the zombies i had killed turned into what they called crimson heads um Mm -hmm. like the, the returned zombies and they are much scarier, <laughs> um, both in, in terms of like how they look and also in terms of um, the damage they do, the quickness they run, that sort of thing. And it takes um, more ammunition to get on. If mm-hmm. you kill a crimson head, it stays dead at that point, right? That's right, yes. But it's just that fact that if you t- already took so many of your resources to put it down the first time, mm-hmm. and then to have to face this much faster, much m- more damage dealing monster that like especially if you don't know it's coming that's got to be freaking terrifying Ooh, yeah and, and you have to ask yourself like is it worth it if i can get to that door over there will i ever have to backtrack through here again or um is this going to be one of those crossroad areas where it's totally worth it for me to kill this uh, this crimson head so there was a lot of like calculus that went into it um and i i think that uh in the future like um i'm thinking like Code Veronica, Nemesis, that sort of thing. 
um, they started playing with unkillable enemies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the I think Nemesis is it stalks you through most of the game. Um, yeah, that that's that was kind of really the first time that they messed with that. Right, and and this is sort of similar to something that um, <coughs> Silent Hill does as well, which is uh, Pyramid Head. Um, yeah, Pyramid Head is unkillable until. Well, I think it's the usually unkillable, but often, yeah, until the end, um, which is also what Nemesis did. So, yeah, I guess that um, there's an element of horror here too that no matter how much you progress and how easily you can kill, you know, nobody zombies, um, there's always going to be something out there that can still really hurt you. Yeah, and and I think that that's really fascinating. That like the original ones, like you said, played so much with resource management that the game almost became a stressor like a stress inducing thing in terms of how it's fear worked because you're constantly worried about expending your resources Mm -hmm. and and this Um, is something that's important about horror right is that one of the reasons why some people like it but only have a limited tolerance to it and why so many horror games are short is because while being stressed can feel fun for a while trying to do like you know 10 hours of stress is just going to make you tired and and angry <laughs> right and and i think that's it's interesting how different horror games play with different stuff like i, I know that a lot of people there's like a pretty strong contingent of people that don't like the five nights at freddy's games and i think the reason is that it's not traditional horror in the sense of like like it, it has an interesting atmosphere and it's got a cool lore if you dig into it though it doesn't always make sense but what that game ultimately is is a stress simulator and because you're just having to manage how do i keep from getting jump scared for like five six seven minutes however long it takes to go through the night right yeah yeah and so instead of it being like a slow methodical thing it's like you have this much chunk of time where you have to manage all these things coming at you and the the fear comes from not getting jump scared because at the end of the day like the jump scares are just like a gif jumping up in front of you and a loud noise yeah they're not even that bad right it's like it freaks you out the first time a couple times it happens but at the end of the day like the the horror that game generates is from the stress of not dying because if you aren't doing things right you get killed really quickly Mm -hmm. yeah um so this is actually another um fun way that people create horror right is the the sense that while not all of the monsters can kill you in one move some of them can Mm -hmm. so you have to always be on your toes you can never just be like well i'll damage soak this um like for example uh resident evil 5 did this resident evil uh sorry Four. Resident Evil 4 did this, um, where although you're getting more and more powerful and you're getting more and more able to just tank hordes of zombies, uh, the ones with the chainsaws can always kill yeah. you in one hit, so you have to kite them. You have to kite them, or you have to find a safe place to shoot at them. They soak a lot of bullets, um, and if they get to you, it's curtains. Yep. Yeah, the idea of the one-shot enemy in a horror game, it, when you have health because not every game horror game do you have like health like in, you've got somewhere every enemy is a one-shot enemy mm-hmm. but this idea where you have health where you can take damage and that becomes another resource to manage when you all of a sudden have an enemy that can just take away all that health and take all of this like thought process and management that has gone into that that becomes really really scary right um yeah, absolutely so um there there are certain ways that a game despite the fact that games are active um, can induce helplessness or uh, certain aspects of helplessness on you. Um, 
do you think that one form of horror is more, I don't know, powerful or more um, pure than another? Like, would you rather be in control of your character during a horror experience or would you rather watch, you know, Annabelle for the third time sort of thing? Uh, I think that for me, I have I have played a couple of horror games, not a ton because I don't do horror really well, but I really like watching other people play horror. Okay. Uh, like I, I watch a lot of YouTube let's plays of horror games because I've always found stories of horror games fascinating and in horror in general fascinating, but I'm a huge chicken. Um, and so actively making myself go out and play these things, I don't do as often. I did it with amnesia and I like, it was a great experience. I really enjoyed the game, but the idea of going back into that for another time, cause like that was really hard for me to do. It was super stressful mm-hmm. uh, and really scary. And, but it set the mood really well for that. Um, but if I can like, you know, watch Markiplier screaming through a couple of horror games, I find that to be like really fulfilling and still fun because I get to see, well, I think that that's what I would have done too, or maybe I would have tried to do that sort of thing differently. And so it's interesting because is that the same as just watching a movie of a horror, like a horror movie? Mm, That's a really good question. Um, you know, I feel like seeing someone that you know and respect and, and think is pretty good at games work their way through a game um, certainly is a little bit different. Like you you have this sense that you're going through with a friend, right? Somebody who, right. you know, is looking out for you and will be good at this sort of thing. Um, uh, it's sort of why I really enjoyed, but was never scared <laughs> by uh, like the pet Scott videos and, and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. They're sort of creepy and atmospheric. I think that there's a lot of room for talking about creepy atmospheric things in terms of horror as well. But they're not as scary in the sense of, like, you're going to have your heart pounding. It's more like when you go to bed that night, you're going to lay there in the dark and be like, but what if? Yeah. Like, honestly, for me, the but what if it can be kind of the most unsettling thing about a horror game. And when it's like, this is real life, but Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Like, that for me is, like, we've talked about this. Like, that is kind of like the horror that really freaks me out. The horror that feels like it could happen in the world that we live in. Yeah. um, You know, which doesn't necessarily mean excluding things of the supernatural or even the the sort of gonzo horror, but it means setting it up in a realistic and, like, maybe sort of way, right? Right. I think that's where, like, the Slender games kind of tapped into something primal about that because those games are at the end of the day they're just a fetch quest it's go collect eight letters and don't get killed Uh but it sets a really interesting atmosphere to it and it's like you're just a person in the woods and there's this really creepy thing that you if you you look at it will kill you and like it's got that unsettling likeness to it that like we've all been alone somewhere and felt like we were being watched yeah um you know, one thing that is sort of interesting about very active horror games is that eventually if you learn the mechanics very well, the horror starts to wear off, right? So right. horror takes place best in a game that you don't particularly understand the mechanics of, um, but one I think where you feel like you've mastered the controls, um, which means that a lot of horror games are best on their first playthrough, right? Or first or second. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Like nine times out of ten, your very first and maybe second time playing through a horror game is going to be the most scary of it, and your any subsequent playthroughs are more about diving into the world that this game tried to create. 
Yeah, and, and actually, that's a really good um, uh, segue here, because I have one more major question about this, and that's that a lot of horror games, like an awful lot of horror games, end in um, downer endings, like you know, whether this be a complete tragedy or a sense that like this will keep going on or it's not really stoppable or, or whatever. And and there are a whole lot of these that I can sort of name off the top of my head. Um, not in terms of games, but in terms of recent movies, uh, things like the, uh, the grudge, um, the woman in black, um, the ring. These are ones that end with this, like you thought you stopped this, but all you did was make it worse or, go through the same thing that everyone else who encounters this monster is going to go through. Um, in terms of video games, there's an awful lot of these too. A lot of the silent Hills end in, uh, big downer endings. Um, dead by daylight is, uh, it's lore says that this is going to continue on as long as the, the sort of entity controlling it, um, once, um, gosh, uh, I mean, uh, many many um of the five nights at freddy's and in sort of negative you know oh and then he got out or you know then you then eventually you did get caught sort of thing um so i i guess my question is if you have read spoilers for a horror game mm-hmm. does that kill your desire to play it or watch it or anything i knew going into Doki Doki Literature Club that something weird was going to happen with it, that there was some sort of turn that took this, you know, what appeared to be a typical, like, light not like, visual novel-style game and made it this really kind of horror-esque theme. Mm-hmm. And I still really wanted to experience that for myself. Sure. Uh... And I think that sometimes it can ruin it. Like, if it's, like, the twist is the only thing the game has, that would ruin it. But I think mm-hmm. that in most stuff, things that aren't like M night Shyamalan esque, like <laughs> the twist is if you know it, all you really know is like one moment of that game. You don't know what is the build up to that point or what's the fallout after that sort of thing happens. Sure. Um, I, I really like games that have multiple endings in the horror one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, for example, one that I'm, I'm constantly fascinated by is bloodborne. <laughs> Um, you know, it's a Soulsborne game, um, but it's definitely packed with horror imagery and themes. Uh, this idea of contagion and illness, um, these ideas of like a whole town going rotten, and then um, sort of eldritch beings from beyond the stars uh, as well. And the more you learn about the game, the weirder the endings get. And they're all sort of varying levels of depressing. Um, there's one that's definitely very much a downer ending. There's one that sort of seems like a positive ending, but um, it sort of means that you have gone back to not understanding the truth of the situation, which is itself kind of a downer. And then there's right. this very, very strange one that you can unlock as the last sort of like true ending um, where you, you kind of like become one of the monsters, sort of, but in a way that implies that you're going to have some power over the situation and uh, that one I find like oddly comforting in some ways. <laughs> it's, it's, it's horrific for sure. And it really keeps the themes of the horror uh, game going, but there's a certain amount of like, well, you understood things well enough to move on. And I think at the heart of almost every horror game, there's a mystery, right? And, and yeah. many of them are solve this mystery really fast before the killer kills you or engage with this mystery really quick before the, the, thing gets you 
and that might give you a chance to succeed. Um, the Kazo Mythos games are a little bit like this. Do you remember those? Mm-mm. Um, so they were like, uh, um, you know, pixel hunt adventure games, um, but released after um, uh, sort of the height of those. I think that they're they were developed by Yahtzee, right? I think you're right. Uh, let me look that up real quick. Um, yeah. Yeah, they were. They were developed by Yahtzee. So, um, anyhow, uh, any any game, I think, that's like a horror game that you have to solve or engage with the mystery in order to understand and even have a chance at beating the, the thing or outsmarting it or even surviving it, um, it are fascinating to me. And I really like when there's like multiple ways to get out so that you can have both a downer ending and also a slightly more hopeful one. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that it that can be a way to encourage multiple playthroughs where some of the horror element is still there if you don't know exactly what the ending is going to be, if you don't know exactly how it's going to be at the end of each time. Mm-hmm. Because then there's still that question there. And like you said, mystery is kind of at the heart of horror because either we don't understand why this thing is doing what it's doing, we don't understand how it's happening, but there's always an element of we don't know something. Mm-hmm. And even like a slasher movie, right? Like slashers are often humans, but they're inscrutable. They have uh, motives that you can't understand, or they have abilities, or like a superhuman willpower, or something right. that isn't the same as people around it, and that makes it a mystery. Well, there's a reason that Michael Myers is still used as a horror villain to this day. Right, right. That that uh, blank face and that difficult to understand or, or not understandable mind behind it, right? Right. Oh. Anyhow, um, gosh, yeah, th- this has been a, a super rich discussion. And um, uh, Do you have any other thoughts on that scale of helplessness to activity in games and outside games? I, I just think that it's it's really interesting like when a game will will pick one road and stick to it versus a game that will start in one way and all end up in another. Okay. Um just that you can play with that kind of spectrum in a game in a way that I don't think you have as much access to when you're trying to tell a cohesive story in a movie or in a book. Yeah, sometimes in a movie I think um there's like a scene where you stop worrying for the protagonist and you, you switch to just supporting them. So I, uh, one horror movie, Hostel, stands out here where in the first half, um, the heroes are absolutely the victims. And on the second half, they sort of like get control of the situation. Um, there are a couple of other movies that come to mind. Green Room has sort of like a back and forth where uh, both the heroes and villains are in, in control at different parts of the movie. Um, and then movies like uh, Shaun of the Dead, which is a comedy horror, but still horror, um, right. that has a moment where they're like, all right, time to, you know, take control and get out of here. Um, and, and those scenes, I think, are sort of like leveling up in a, in a game. But absolutely, the game is um, so much more able to add things, take away things. You know, if you come to rely on one particular resource, it can take the resource away from you or, or whatever. Um, and I find that really, really interesting as a tool to create horror. Yeah, agreed. Cool. Well, if you guys want to chat horror with us, the best way to do so is on Twitter. Uh, go ahead and hit us up at uh, playing underscore rough. You can email us at playingroughpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, check us out on Instagram, Facebook, uh, or you can go to our Patreon page, Playing Rough Podcast. 
Um, I have just dropped 25 spooky institutions of learning um, from my 25 things to add to your uh, D&D or um, RPG campaign series that I've been running. Um, and uh, I'm going to keep some more interesting 25 series uh, articles coming in the next few weeks. So um, with that, I have been John. And I have been David. Bye, guys. Bye. Okay, John, have you heard about this YouTube channel called Crypt TV? No. Tell me about this. I think that you would adore this. Okay. Uh, I only found out about this because... Um, Game film theorists did an episode about one of their monsters, okay. but it's essentially a shared universe horror. Um, like the what they do is they do a bunch of short horror stories within a connected universe, and they use practical effects, um, like and like traditional horror like storytelling and stuff. And it's like they'll do like full like seasons almost of uh, different storylines, but the whole thing is like a connected universe practical effects horror story that it like where they just try to do like I'm looking at it now like it looks like they're anywhere from like three to fifteen minutes for most of the episodes. I would like that. That sounds like it really just cool. it sounded so much up your alley. I had to make sure to bring it up. Uh, it was really cool because the the film theorist episode you did he looked specifically at one of their monsters and it's one of the coolest concepts for a monster ever I've seen. It's called the look see. Okay. And what it does is it, if you have a regret that you're holding onto, it can come and essentially be like, Hey, if you don't give up this regret, I'm going to take a piece of you in return. And we'll either like actively kill the person or like, when he was going through it, it showed like a scene of a woman who'd had like her whole arm taken because she failed to relieve that regret. Oh, wow. That's like very symbolic. Neat. Yeah. It was a really interesting take on it. And I was like, like, this is a cool thing I should bring up for Halloween. And also I don't want to forget to tell John about this. (laughs) That reminds me of like the SCP foundation, which I was going to mention during the episode proper and never really got around to it. Um, Also a shared universe where, uh, you know, the foundation is trying to control these these horrific beings, but doesn't quite have the resources to do so. And so a mm-hmm. lot of them are just kind of there, but not really controlled, um, which is a really interesting way to like look at horror, right? There's somebody who's trying to control it, but they might not quite be able to. That's a, another sort of horrific situation. Um, <laughs> and also, uh, while we're on the topic of spooky things for Halloween that I'm pretty sure the other person would like... You mentioned, you know, that you like spooky things, but sometimes too horrific gets you uh, not where you want to be, right? Right. Um, so I suggest to you the uh, the U- YouTube channel, The Lair of Voltaire, if you haven't seen this. Mm-hmm. Um, the probably most important um, stuff that's running right now there is uh, the Gothic Homemaker, uh, where a... Um, music musical artist and uh, visual artist and gosh he does a whole lot of things uh but also like old school goth um he makes things that are spooky and gothic out of very cheap materials that he finds at places like joanne fabrics and michael's and <laughs> things like that and it is wonderful and just extremely uh, like cozy feeling and he is very friendly and engaging and, and warm as a speaker and <laughs> I think that you would really enjoy watching this <laughs> oh my god we have to check this out this is great <laughs> <laughs>
So uh, those are our recommendations for YouTube videos, listeners. Um, <laughs> they're very entertaining, and I'm sure that you will love this for a, a spooky Halloween. <sighs> I'm excited. Yeah, me too. All right, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. And we're out.